As we turn to God's word this morning, we are in the last uh, three verses of Exodus chapter 2. Um, and these are really the, the most exciting verses yet because these are the verses where God uh, enters the picture. Uh, we've been introduced to Israel. We've been introduced to Pharaoh. Uh, we've been introduced to Moses, and now we come to the greatest figure of all, the true hero of the story, to God himself. And so that's what we'll see as we open to Exodus 2, uh, 23 to 25. So Moira will come and we'll read that text for us. After that, Krista will come and read for us from Psalm 6, 4 to 10, which kind of echoes this cry for help that the people of Israel or the Hebrew people cried out to God with. Um, after that, we want to turn to the New Testament and see how the theme of crying out to God from the midst of slavery reverberates in the New Testament or shows up in the New Testament. And the main way that it shows up in the New Testament, we'll see in John 8, 34 through 36, is the New Testament states clearly that sin is slavery. And so we'll see how the analogy happens between the Hebrew people crying out to help for help from God from their slavery and us now in our slavery to sin also crying out to help from God. So Don will come and read for us John 8, 34 to 36. <clears throat> and then lastly, Kathy will come and read for us from Ephesians 2, 1 to 9, that just explores that glorious response that God had to us when we cried out to him in the midst of our slavery for help. And so let's listen to God's word now for the deliverance that he offers in both Exodus and in our own lives. So Moira, if you'd like to come and begin our reading now. Exodus 2, verses 23 to 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Psalm 6, 4 to 10. Turn, Yahweh, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for Yahweh has heard the sound of my weeping. Yahweh has heard my plea. Yahweh accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. John eight thirty four through 36. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Ephesians 2, 1-9 And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the Spirit is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were, by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love 
with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that anyone could boast. Well, again, in Exodus chapter 2 this morning, we come to the rousing of God to the cry of his people. And this is indeed a great moment in the book of Exodus. This is the first rumblings of everything that is to come. Uh, in our language, we have the phrase to, to wake a sleeping giant. <laughs> and nothing could be better said of what is happening here than that very thing. A sleeping giant has been awoken. Pharaoh has been oppressing the people of Israel. They have been working as slaves. They have been having their young male babies slaughtered by Pharaoh. Everything seems to be going wrong. And yet, we come now to 2, verse 23, where it says, The king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And it says their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And then in verse 24 and 25, we hear God's response. We see four verbs in particular, four things that God does. First, God heard their groaning. And then God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Then God saw the people of Israel. And then lastly, God New. This is the response of God to the cry of his people. And this text has direct bearing, direct implications on our lives this morning. Indeed, whether you are living a life this morning that is under the gospel or not under the gospel is largely a question of do you understand that God hears you when you call? If you are living a life under the gospel, meaning that you are living a life where you are trusting in Jesus Christ, where you know you are united to him, that you are adopted by God, then you have this relationship with God, that he is your heavenly father, that you can cry out to him and he listens and he is on your side. Or, if that's not your experience, if you're not crying out to God moment by moment, day by day, thinking that God is distant and removed, that he can't hear you, then fundamentally what is going on is that you have not understood the gospel. You have not believed the gospel, what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And so these verses for us this morning are just a wonderful gospel call for us to look to God to remember that God hears when we call, that he sees, that he remembers, and that he knows. And if we believe this about God, then we will be able to start to live in the way that God has for us and continual dependence upon Him and rejoicing in the mercy that has been poured out in Jesus Christ. And when we know that life, we truly know the life of a son of God, of an adopted child of God, rather than the life of a slave. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. That's where we're going. So the people of Israel had come under a harsh slavery. 
We see, see that slavery described in chapter 1, verses 11 to 14. We'll go back and look at that in just a moment. But clearly, slavery is something that would make anyone cry out for help, would it not? I mean, it is a desperate condition. When you were a slave, you were not your own. You were owned by another. The work that you do is not determined by your own best interest, by your own preference. It's determined by your master. And if your master is very harsh and cruel, then your labor will be harsh and cruel. And there will be no escape. And that is what Israel was experiencing. They were experiencing harsh and cruel slavery. And so they were crying out to God. Now, one of the amazing things in these verses to me is that this cry that Israel had, it is not even described as a cry to God or as a, as a, as a cry of prayer. Rather, it's just called groaning and a, and a cry for help. And we saw in a previous week that the people of Israel at this time had largely forgotten God. They'd largely forgotten the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They were serving other idols. And yet, in their misery, they cry out. Verse 23 says they groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. And then it's almost like the next phrase says, And it so happened that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So it's not that they were necessarily even crying to God or saying, God help me. They were just groaning because of the weight of their slavery. And God was so gracious as to hear their cry as to hear their groan. Now, I don't want us to pass up just the wonder that God did hear their cry. I mean, this God we know from the book of Genesis is the creator of the universe. He created all things in heaven and on earth. And he has a purpose in all of history. The purpose that Exodus will really highlight more than any other book. A purpose to get glory for his great name. The purpose that all the earth would know what a glorious God he is. And if he has this great purpose, and this thing is going on in Egypt, namely the the Hebrew people being enslaved by the Egyptians, we, in our own human and pragmatic way of thinking, would naturally say, well, God, who's going to help you better achieve your purpose of getting your fame, your glory out to the world that you have created. And I think all of us would probably say, God, you should really be on the side of the Egyptians here, you know? I mean, the Egyptians, they have more wealth, they have more power, they have more chariots. You know, if you want people to hear about you, if you want people to glorify you, say that you're the God of Egypt, right? And then people will look to Egypt and they'll be like, wow, Egypt is powerful, Egypt is wealthy, We want to be like them. We want to worship the same God that Egypt worships. And so is it not surprising that God would pass up Egypt, the wealthiest nation on earth, the most powerful nation on earth, and say, I'm not going to choose you to represent me. I'm not going to be your God. I'm going to be the God of these slaves, of these people who can't make me known in any way who are oppressed, who don't seem like a great people right now, who, if anyone had a choice, they would not choose to be like the Hebrew people, be with the Hebrew people. No one wants to be slaves. And yet, God is listening to them. He's listening to the cry of the Hebrew people, and he is not listening to the efforts of Pharaoh. In fact, it's a little bit startling 
That here in verse 23, it says that the king of Egypt died. And the king of Egypt, as we've seen in chapters 1 and chapter 2, devised all this plan to enslave the people of Israel. Devised this plan to kill all the male babies. And yet, now he's died. We still don't know his name. We don't know of any babies that he's actually killed. We just know of the one that was rescued. We know of the Hebrew midwives and of the daughter and Pharaoh. Pharaoh's own house who rescued this baby, Moses, who was cast into the river. And so now Pharaoh has died despite all of his power and might, and it seems that he has utterly failed. And the purposes of God through these mere people, through midwives, through daughters, this is the way that the purpose of God is going forward. God is hearing the cry of the small, of the weak, of the overlooked, and he is ignoring The efforts of Pharaoh. Pharaoh dies, and yet God's purposes carry on. And so, from a common sense perspective, we might say that, God, you really should be on the side of the Egyptians. The Egyptians are going to be better able to spread your name. They're more impressive. If you want to be an impressive God, you should have an impressive people, right? And yet, God is siding with the Hebrew people. Now, why does God do that? The answer is that God does not work according to human wisdom. He does not work according to our common sense. He does not work according to the logic that we want to use. Rather, as this text makes clear, he works according to covenant. He works according to covenant. That's what we see in verse 24. It says, And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. This is why God is siding with the Hebrew people instead of the Egyptian people, because he had made a covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, with the forefathers of the Hebrew people. Now, we're not going to be able to look at all the words of the covenant that God had established with all of them, but just consider these words of the covenant that God made with Abraham. God says to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is God's promise to Abraham. What is a covenant but a promise? It's a promise that you are on someone's side, that you're going to be with someone. That's what a covenant is. That's why it says that God made a covenant with Abraham because God made this promise to Abraham. God promised Abraham, I will be on your side. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. So this was God promising himself to Abraham. Now this promise that he made to Abraham seems very relevant in this present moment, does it not? When the people of Israel are crying out for help because of their slavery, I mean, we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 that God has indeed made the descendants of Abraham a great nation, right? We read that Israel multiplied and grew numerous and very great. In fact, that's why they were subjected to slavery in the first place, because they were so numerous that Pharaoh got scared. So God has already performed that part of his covenant. But then the second part of his covenant where he says, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Now, what is going on? In the life of Israel right now. Well, are they not being dishonored? (laughs) Is not someone coming against Israel, coming against the people of God? 
And so if God has made this covenant with Israel, if he's promised, him, promised himself to them in this way, then what does he have to do? Well, according to the promise that he made to Abraham, he must curse Egypt because Egypt is dishonoring his people. This is the covenant that God has made. Now, notice just two things from this simple reality that God is honoring the covenant that he made, the promise that he made to Abraham. First, notice the faithfulness of God. Notice that even though it is not to God's advantage at all to serve the Hebrew people right now, even though God has nothing to gain from it, God nevertheless keeps his promise. He keeps his word that he promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Beloved, I hope that this can be a comfort to all of you here who have hoped in Christ. Maybe sometimes you feel like you don't have very much to offer to God. Like you, your life has been a failure in many ways or has not turned out as you would hope or you struggle with many problems and you just don't feel like you're very useful. Like you can't give very much back. Well, guess what? God's faithfulness to you is not dependent on how useful you are to him on how much you can accomplish. No, his faithfulness to you is dependent upon the fact that he promised himself to you in Jesus Christ. And so that promise has been made, and because that promise has been made, that promise will be kept. Not because of anything you do, not because you hold up your side of the bargain, but because God has promised. And so take great comfort. You don't have to accomplish great things for God, for him to love you, for him to strengthen you, for him to help you. God does not operate on the basis of your earnings. He operates on the basis of his grace. This is an aside, but I want to say it just because it's very pertinent here. This is why we value membership so much as a church. Because as the church, as the people of God, we are supposed to be God's family established by the promise of God. What makes you part of the church? How do you connect to the church? Do you connect by serving a lot? You know, by volunteering and getting involved? Is that really what makes you part of God's family? Again, what you can do for God, what you can do for the church? No. What makes you part of God's family is that you believe in Jesus Christ. You trust him. You cry out in your slavery to sin and you say, God, I need your help. That's what makes you part of the family of God. That's what makes you a member of the church. So we don't want anyone to think that, oh, you really get connected to this church just by serving, by doing a lot of stuff in this church. And that's how we'll recognize you as valuable in this church. No, you are not valuable in the family of God on the basis of what you can do. We as a church should care about you. We should care about each member because God has set his love on each member. Not because we're really great at performing or can give a lot of money or can volunteer a lot of time or anything like that. Our status before God and our status in God's church is wholly dependent upon God's faithfulness to his promise, God's love bestowed on us before we did anything right or wrong. And in that, we find our value, we find our meaning, we find our worth. And so, in this culture of ours that so often tells you that you're really only worth what you can earn, you're really only worth what you know or what you can do, just don't believe those lies. 
Believe the promise of God that he will keep his promise to you on the basis of his mercy and his grace alone. So notice that God is faithful to his promise, even though it's of no advantage to him. But second, also notice that God's timing is not our timing, okay? The people of Israel at this point had been crying out for hundreds of years. They had been in slavery for hundreds of years. In fact, God predicted to Abraham back in Genesis 15, 13. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's how long the people of Israel had been in slavery. They'd been in slavery for 400 years. Now, again, from a human perspective, we might look at this covenant, this promise that God made to Abram and say, well, these people have been in slavery 400 years. Must be that God forgot about them. Must be that God does not honor his word, does not honor his covenants. And yet, that is not at all the case. Again, in the verses this morning, we see that God hears, God sees, God remembers, God knows. God has not forgotten his covenant. Now, did it take longer than the people of Israel would have liked? Well, I'm sure it did. I'm sure that very first generation to fall into slavery would have loved it for God to come at their beck and call. But God's purposes are higher than our purposes, and therefore his timing is different than our timing. And let this also be an encouragement to each of you. I know that there's many of us in this church who've been crying out to God for many years, asking God to do something, and we have not seen the result yet. We have not seen God answer yet. And we, in our sinfulness, want to think that maybe God just doesn't hear. Maybe God's forgotten. Maybe God doesn't care. But in reality, Beloved, God has an appointed time for everything good, for everything right, for every blessing. And if we will persevere, if we will hold fast to God, if we will keep praying, keep seeking his face, keep crying out, then the cry today might be that cry where God hears and God answers. Because he is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. Rather, he has perfect timing. And he will deliver at the, exactly the right moment. So keep crying out. The people of Israel cried out for 400 years. And in that 400th year, God heard and God began to move. So don't grow weary and you're crying out, but rather persevere. God's timing is good, even if it is hard. And so this is the, the basis of our text this morning. The people of Israel are in slavery, that they cry out to God and that God in his mercy, because of his covenant faithfulness, hears their cry and begins the work of deliverance. Now, it's really important for us to see in this why the people of Israel are crying out. Now, God performed the exodus in history and he recorded the exodus in the words of the Bible, so that this could be an encouragement to us, so that we could be strengthened by the story of this exodus. And God inspired it and wrote this story in a particular way so that we ourselves could be helped. And in particular, one of the biggest themes throughout the book of Exodus that then carries over to the New Testament, carries into our own lives today, is this theme of slavery. This is why the people of Israel were crying out. 
Again, Exodus 2, 23, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Now, it would be one thing if this were just kind of an interesting historical drama, right? I mean, we could still learn something about the character of God and about what God does. But there's something even more profound going on here when the people of Israel cry out because of their slavery. That this cry in the midst of slavery is itself supposed to be a lesson for us. Now you may not know this, you may have not realized it before, but all of us were at one time slaves. All of us were at one time slaves. Maybe you're still a slave here this morning. Now we don't think that we were ever slaves because in our American context, we're born free people, right? Slavery is totally illegal in our nation. We don't know of anyone who's a slave, and so we don't think we are slaves. And yet, Scripture clearly teaches that there is a reality of slavery that is present in each one of our lives. There is a reality of slavery that is present in every human's life, and this reality of slavery maps on quite closely to the reality that the people of Israel were experiencing in the book of Exodus. This reality of slavery that is present in each of our lives is slavery to sin. Again, Jesus makes this point very clearly in John eight thirty four, which we read before the message. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, I know this is very counterintuitive, okay? We don't like to think that our sin is like slavery, okay? We know some things about slavery in history, and we know things like slavery was, you know, very uncomfortable, very painful. And yet so often we think that our sins are very comfortable, very pleasant, very pleasurable. So that doesn't seem like slavery, We also know that slavery implies that there's not a free choice going on, right? You have a master. You are bought by someone else. There is no freedom in slavery. Freedom and slavery are opposites. And yet, our sin often seems like a very free choice, right? We don't have anyone standing over us insisting that we sin. No, when we sin, we are saying, I get to sin. I choose it for myself. It doesn't seem like slavery. And so in this way, sin deceives us. Sin makes us think that it is something sweet, something pleasurable, something good, something that is of our own free will. We can stop whenever we want to. And it doesn't reveal itself to us as the slavery that it is. Let's look at the words that describe the slavery of the people of Israel and let's see how these words apply to sin in our lives today. So if you go back to Exodus chapter 1, verses 11 to 14, these are the main descriptors of the slavery that the people of Israel are in. It says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick. And in all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work 
as slaves. In these words, we see very clearly just how miserable the slavery was for the people of Israel. I mean, just look at some of the words that are repeated. That they were ruthlessly made to work. It says that in both verse 12 and in verse 14. The end of chapter 2 reminds us that they were groaning. Verse 14 also tells us that they had to make mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. So all this outdoor heavy labor. And so in all these ways they had to work as slaves. Now again, when we think of the reality of sin, we don't think naturally that sin is very analogous to this. We think that sin is a a light thing, a, a pleasurable thing. We don't think that it's this brutal and ruthless form of hard labor. And yet, I think if you will take a moment to reflect on the nature of sin, then I think you will discover quite quickly how sin is, in reality, slavery. First, consider how ruthless sin is in its labor, how hard it makes you to work. This reality is very clearly presented in sin in the fact that at no time has anyone ever sinned and then felt satisfied or felt rested as a result. Of course, we go into sin thinking that that's exactly what's going to happen. It's going to comfort us. It's going to make us feel better. If we can just give in to sin in this small way, then maybe we'll be able to relax. Maybe we'll be able to enjoy ourselves. And yet the reality of sin is that even when we go in with that mindset, with that thought, at the end of the process, at the end of the sin, what we find is that we're actually more exhausted. We're more depleted. We find that even though we have entered in thinking that it's something that will bring us joy and pleasure, When we exit, we find that we have actually been enduring hard work and we are tired and we need rest. And this is precisely how sin gives way to slavery. Because at the end of your sin, you find yourself more exhausted, more depleted. And then in your sinful state, where do you think you will go to find that rest, to find that rejuvenation? Well, you think you're going to find it in more sin, right? So then you engage in more sin, and at the end of that, you find yourself more depleted, more exhausted. And so you look for more sin to fill yourself more and more and more. And your heart is like this never-ending chasm that can never be filled, and you just pursue sin after sin after sin, and you never find rest or satisfaction. And so in this way, we see that sin is both compulsive, the way that slavery is compulsive, and that sin is depleting and draining in the same way that slavery is depleting and draining. I mean, probably the clearest picture of this happening is in the lives of addicts. Now, I know that not everyone in this room has experienced addiction or maybe even knows someone with addiction, but the point that I want to make is that addiction, the reality of addiction, is just a picture writ large of the same process that goes on in all of our hearts, okay? You may not be an addict by the clinical definition of the term, but all of us are addicts to sin. We are all slaves to sin. So how does addiction work? I'll just take addiction to alcohol for an easy example, something that I'm sure we're all at least somewhat familiar with. A person takes one drink and they feel a little bit better. 
And then the next time when they want a drink, they need a little bit more to get that same buzz, to feel good in the same way. And that process goes on and on and on. And they have to drink more and more and more to feel good again. And before they know it, they cannot stop drinking. They have to drink, even in order for their mind to function, for their body to function. They just keep drinking and drinking and drinking, even though it's terrible for their bodies, even though it's destroying their lives. They have a compulsion that they cannot stop. And they need more and more to get the same response that they got at the very beginning. Well, again, this is what happens with every single sin. Whether your sin is something that you think is pretty minor and innocent, you know, like a sin of gossip, you know, you just sometimes like to share something that you really shouldn't share. But, oh, it just feels so good to be on the inside knowledge, you know, to be able to say that thing about somebody else that makes you look a little bit better than them. You know, it seems like such a small sin, you know, how could that lead to more and more? But you feel that response that you get from the gossip where you just feel a little bit better about yourself, where others think a little bit better about you. And so what happens next time you have the opportunity? You want to gossip a little bit more. Next time you have the opportunity, you want to gossip a little bit more. Gossip never satisfies your heart. I know many in this room have struggled with pornography. Pornography is the exact same mechanism as alcohol itself. You look at an image one time, you think, oh, it's just going to be one time. I can stop whenever I want. And yet, it doesn't fill that chasm in your heart. It doesn't fill the void in your heart. And so you look more and more and more until you are trapped in a cage. Indeed, what we see ultimately is that not only is sin analogous to slavery, but we see that sin itself is actually worse than slavery. Sin is worse than slavery. All this oppression that the people of Israel were experiencing, it was indeed hard, it was indeed brutal, and indeed led to death for many of them, but at least it was only a physical sort of oppression, right? And yet, What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin, beloved, are spiritual death. Eternal separation from God in hell. I mean, tell me what is worse. To be separated from God, to be punished for all eternity? Or to have a life of 50, 60, 70 years where every day is backbreaking labor? I know we can more easily visualize the 50, 60, 70 years. That sounds really terrible. But just take a moment to visualize eternity of that. How much worse is sin, beloved, than any kind of earthly slavery? Jesus himself warns us in this way in Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We should be more fearful of sin than we are even of slavery. Ralph Venning, a Puritan in his work, summarized these words of Christ, saying, "Is that is, it is better to be killed than to be damned. It is better to be killed than to be damned. It is better to be a slave, to be in physical chains. It's better to have that than to be in slavery to sin. 
With sin, again, you have as much of a master as any earthly slave has ever had. With sin, you have as brutal a treatment, if not worse, than any human master over a slave has ever performed. You're constantly drained, constantly exhausted. And with sin, your work is constantly hard and heavy. Those moments of joy are so fleeting. They go away in a flash. And you are left feeling dead, empty, lost, guilty, ashamed. Sin and slavery to sin is much worse than any kind of physical slavery. And so when we come to these words in Exodus chapter 2, when it says the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, beloved, how much more should we groan because of our sin? How much more should we be crying out to God because of the weight that lies upon us when we sin against a holy God? When we know the the mastery that sin has over us, it should cause us to do one thing, to cry out for help. Indeed, Scripture teaches us that there is ultimately only one way to be freed from sin. There is only one way to be freed from slavery. And that way is through death. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, he says, Do you not know, brothers, that the law is binding on a person as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, then she is not an adulteress. And the Apostle Paul goes on to remind them, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. If you are here this morning and you are sensing your slavery to sin, There is only one way to be free from that slavery. And that way is to die. Now God has been so gracious to us as to say that we ourselves do not have to die for our slavery to sin. Rather, he sent his son. He sent his son in the form of a slave, it says in Philippians 2. To live As a slave like we are, only he did not sin. Yet he took on the form of our slavery. It says that he was born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so because Christ has died and because Christ has risen again, what that means is there is a way out of slavery now. We can die to our old master, the master of sin. And we can live to a new master, 
with God being our new master. And God being our master is an infinitely better master than the mastery of sin. And so when we come now to God and we cry out, when we groan, just like the people of Israel groaned, we don't have to wait for a future day, for a future deliverance to come. Rather, we can look back, we can see how Christ Jesus himself died, and if Christ has died, then we can have confidence that our own freedom from slavery to sin has been purchased. And as we trust in him, we know that we can have the power of a new life that has power over sin, that is able to resist sin. And so the way that we fight sin today, the way that we conquer sin today, as Paul says, is we consider it dead. We believe that it is dead. We trust that it is dead because Christ himself has died. And if Christ has died, that means that sin can no longer reign in our mortal bodies. And so we trust in Jesus Christ. And as we trust in his death, as we are joined in his death, then we ourselves get freedom out from under the slave master of sin. And we come into a new and glorious mastery. And beloved, if you have trusted in Christ, and yet you still are just racked with sin, you're fighting sin in some way, and you feel like you have not had success, then again, hear these words of Exodus 2, that God is faithful to his covenant. As he killed his own son to give you freedom from sin, he will kill sin in your life. God himself knows that slavery to sin is worse than physical slavery. And so he hates the sin in your life even more than he had compassion on the people of Israel. I love these words of Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin is another Puritan. These words come from his book, The Heart of Christ. He says, There is comfort concerning such infirmities, such sins. In that your very sins move him to pity more than to anger. For he suffers with us under our infirmities. And by infirmities are meant sins as well as other miseries. Christ takes part with you. And is so far from being provoked against you. As all his anger is turned upon your sin to ruin it. Yes, his pity is increased the more towards you, even as the heart of a father is to a child that has some loathsome disease, or one is to a member of his body that has leprosy. He hates not the member, for it is his flesh, but the disease. And that provokes him to pity the part affected the more. What shall not be turned to our advantage when our sins that are both against Christ and us shall be turned as motives to him to pity the more? The greater the misery is, the more is the pity when that part is beloved. Now of all miseries, sin is the greatest. And while you look at it as such, Christ will look upon it as such also. And he, loving your persons and hating only the sin, his hatred shall fall, and that only upon the sin, to free you of it by its ruin and destruction." But his affection shall be the more drawn out to you. And this as much when you lie under sin as under any other affliction. Therefore, fear not. 
Beloved, do you see how God has pity on you even when you sin? Because he hates the sin. He knows it is bondage. He knows it better than you know it. And so if you despise the sin, then turn to God. He despises the sin also. He wants to destroy it in your life and he wants to rescue you. Even as with the Israelites, he wanted to rescue them and yet destroy their oppressor. So beloved, cry out to God this morning. Know that God sees. Know that God hears. Know that he remembers and know that he knows. He will be faithful to his covenant with you in Christ Jesus. So turn to him every moment as a child turns to a loving father. He cares for you. He hates what harms you. He will hear you and he will help you. Trust in him. Would you go with me now to God our Father in prayer? Heavenly Father, we indeed praise you and thank you for being a God who hears. For being a God who is faithful. For being a God who responds. For being a God who hates all that is for our ill and desires and loves all that is for our good. I pray, Lord, that you would empower us to trust you all the more. Forgive us, Lord, for how often we hide from you, thinking that we can clean ourselves up and instead help us to trust in you fully. I pray that you would give us hearts of trust in you now, even as we turn to you in prayer. Help us to come to you in prayer with confidence that you hear and that you respond. Would you hear our prayers now?